Well, good morning. My name is Brian, and this morning we're going to be returning to my series on origins in Genesis 1 through 3. And over the last 15 months or so, we've considered in Genesis 1 the origin of everything, the origin of life, and the origin of humanity. And in Genesis chapter 2, we've looked at the origin of Sabbath, the origin of work, and the origin of marriage. And today, we're going to look at Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6, and consider the origin of sin. And as you find your place in your Bible or on your devices, I'd encourage you to keep it open this morning. We'll be going back to it again and again. Now, you may think it's kind of a bummer to start the new year, right? It's 2024, and we're going to start the new year by focusing on sin. But I would argue that you can't truly understand grace unless you first understand sin. You can't understand the solution until you've understood the problem. And Genesis 3 verses 1 through 6 is actually foundational to the storyline, the plot of the Bible. The basic plot of the Bible is creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And today we're going to be looking at the fall. You see this first sin, this first sin of many sins in the history of the world sets up the pattern, the paradigm, the template, the model that every other sin that follows will follow. It's kind of like an assembly line. In, on August 12th, 1908, the very first Model T Ford rolled off of the assembly line. And this car was a simple, sturdy car that only came in one color, black. There were no factory options for the Model T Ford. It had a four-cylinder, 20-horsepower engine that could propel it 40 to 45 miles an hour. And the assembly line began to crank out Model T Ford after Model T Ford. 19 years later, the very last Model T Ford rolled off of the assembly line. It was number 15 million. And it was exactly the same as the first Model T Ford because it followed the same pattern and the same process and ended up with the same results. And so it is with sin. So it is with sin. You see, sin follows this same pattern. It's an assembly line that's being put out one after another. And so, right, uh, and so sin uh, is explained uh, here in Genesis 3, 1 through 6. This isn't just an ancient story from an old book. This explains our world today, because the assembly line of sin is still rolling along. It's still rolling along in our world. It's still rolling along in our own hearts. This morning, we're going to look at our passage under three headings. Uh, the first two headings, we're going to group together and call them the pattern of sin. And with the pattern of sin, we're going to see, first of all, obscuring the word in verses one through four, obscuring the word. And then in verses five and six, we're going to see grasping for God's place, 
grasping for God's place. And then after we look at the pattern of sin, we'll consider the pattern of redemption. And here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. The pattern of sin and the pattern of redemption is this. The arrogance of man is met by the humility of God. The arrogance of man is met by the humility of God. Now, as we come to our passage this morning, sin has already entered the cosmos, but today we see how sin enters the world. And by the way, as sin entered the cosmos when Satan fell, it was by this same pattern that we see as sin enters the world. So let's focus our attention then on Genesis 3, starting at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who is with her and he ate. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we consider this morning the origin of sin, the pattern of this very first sin that shapes the sin that we see in the world, the sin that we see in our own hearts, I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel, by the work of your Holy Spirit, and by the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus and him only. Amen. So first of all, then, let's consider together the pattern of sin. The pattern of sin. There are many stories, both ancient and modern, that attempt to explain how sin entered the world. It's a universal question. Think about that for a minute. Every culture recognizes that there's something broken in the world. Every culture recognizes that evil doesn't belong, that this isn't the way it was meant to be. And as our text answers this universal question, it shows us the origin of sin, and as it does so, it gives us the pattern of sin. And it all begins with a serpent. Now, the Old Testament only refers to the serpent, but New Testament authors identify the serpent with Satan. Two times in Revelation, Revelation 12 and Revelation 20, the Apostle John uh, refers to that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. And as we come to three, chapter 3 and verse 1, we don't know how much time has passed from chapter 2.25 to 3.1. We don't know how much time Adam and Eve spent together in marital bliss in paradise. 
Was it a couple of hours, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple of years? We don't know. But what we do know is in this context, Adam and Eve are sinless creatures. They're in covenant with God. They've been given the gift of Sabbath, of marriage, of labor. They've been given a home and a commandment. They're image bearers. They're God's vice regents. They're in communion with God in paradise. But the serpent was sharper. He was more crafty. And Moses is saying, do you see the danger of sin? And notice where the serpent begins. He says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This is a religious conversation. They're talking about the word of God. What did God really say? You see, this crafty serpent is no secularist. This is a theological discussion, and the devil is there. Satan enjoys Bible studies. And that leads us to the first part of the pattern of sin, which is obscuring the word. Obscuring the word. And obscuring the word has three components to it twisting, mishandling, and then denying. And these three components go hand in hand. Satan, first of all, twists the word, verse 1. And then Eve mishandles the word, verses 2 and 3. And then Satan denies the word, verse 4. So first of all, twisting the word, verse 1. Look back at the command in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. It's just a couple of verses up in your text there. And the Lord God said, commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. And then notice how Satan twists this command. Can I get that first slide, Andre? The serpent says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And then God's command was, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. You see, Satan uh, emphasizes not the riches, not the extravagance of God's gift. You may surely eat from every tree of the garden. But the serpent focuses on the restrictions and twists it with the restrictions. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree of the garden? You see, the serpent begins with your view of God. He's implying that you have a no-no God. You know, that giant policeman in the sky who's just waiting for you to cross the line so he can get you, right? If the tempter can plant discontentment, by twisting your view of God, then he can nurture it into disobedience. You must be content with your God. If you're dissatisfied, you have to protect against infidelity. You know, if you're infatuated with your spouse, you won't be attracted by someone else. And if the grace and goodness and majesty and extravagance of God is fresh on your memory, then you're not likely to fall for some false view of who God is. But notice the second twisting. It's very subtle. Did you catch it in the text? In Genesis 2 and 3, Moses uses the title Lord God exclusively 
to refer to God. And by taking Lord and God together, uh, he takes down, thanks, Andre, you can take that down. Uh, by taking Lord and God together, he's saying God, Elohim, is referring back to Genesis 1. And in Genesis 1, God is omnipotent. He creates all things in the space of six days by the word of his power, right? And then Moses joins to that Yahweh, or which is translated Lord in your English. And this is the covenant name of God. It's the, the name of God that summarizes that he will be your God, and I will, you will be my people, and I will be your God, and I will dwell in the midst of you. Yahweh is the name that shows the closeness and the tenderness and the presence of God. But did you notice what Satan does? He takes Lord out of the equation and just refers to God as God. And, and so Satan is creating distance between Eve and her God. It's not Lord God, it's just God. And so Satan's language suggests that God is distant and he is restrictive. And that leads to Eve then mishandling the word in verses 2 and 3. So she responds to, to Satan twisting the word by referring to the word. But there's a problem. The word is not clear in her mind. She gets it jumbled up. And I want to look this morning at where she gets it wrong. This next slide compares what Eve says in Genesis 3, verses 2 and 3, to God's command in Genesis 2 and verse 16. And you'll see the additions, what she adds to God's command in bold and in parentheses, and the omissions in brackets and in italics. And the first thing that you'll see, and, and by the way, the, these omissions and additions are an anatomy of temptation. Notice, first of all, that she adds the fruit of, the fruit of. This is the first time fruit appears in this context in the passage, and she refers to it twice, both in verse 2 and in verse 3. And you know the fruit is what gets taken and it's already beginning to capture her attention. It's already beginning to caption, capture her imagination. And she omits surely and every. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, trees in the garden, right? And by leaving out surely and every, she's beginning to obscure God's generosity. Her omissions support the serpent's view of a restrictive God. And then notice she omits the Lord from the Lord God. She's beginning to use Satan's name for God, the, the serpent's more restrictive view of God, more distant view of God. And then she replaces of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, within the midst of the garden. And the knowledge of good and evil is the very heart of the temptation, and she's now obscuring it by a vague directional reference. And then she adds, neither shall you touch it. And by adding her own restriction to the command, she becomes the first legalist. You see, legalism often occurs when people have a less generous and more restrictive view of God. 
And then she diminishes the punishment by leaving out surely. The command says, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And Eve leaves out the surely. Do you see how much hinges on the precision of grammar? One commentator says, God gives humanity language to subdue the earth, to bring everything under dominion. The serpent perverts language, using it to bring confusion and to draw Adam and Eve under his control. You see, Eve's use of language here reveals that her heart is already being sucked in. Sin is taking root. It's already beginning. Tim Keller, in his book, The Prodigal God, explains that in the parable that's typically referred to as the prodigal son in Luke 15, actually both sons are running from God. You see, the younger son, the younger brother, is running from God through disobedience and disregarding God's commands. That would be licentiousness. But the older brother is also running from God. And he's running from God through obedience and by adding to God's commands. You see, the best way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin, says Flannery O'Connor. And that's legalism, right? Keller says that the gospel is neither religion nor irreligion. It's neither legalism nor licentiousness. And I think we actually have both ways of mishandling God's word here. You see, legalism or religion would obscure God's generosity by leaving out the surely and the every. And it would add restrictions to the command, like neither shall you touch it. But licentiousness or irreligion would lack the specificity of omitting the heart of the temptation of the knowledge of good and evil and would diminish, it, diminish the punishment, you will surely die. And perhaps both religion and irreligion, licentiousness and legalism would create distance from God by omitting the Lord in God's title, the Lord God. I think we all have a natural inclination as to how we mishandle the word. Do you know how you're wired, what your inclination is? Do you tend towards legalism or licentiousness? Do you tend towards religion or irreligion? Do you add things to the word of God or do you take things away from the word of God? Thanks, Andre. This is the word of God. And so much is at mistake as and so much is at stake. But Eve mishandles the word. Her understanding is inadequate. It's insufficient. She's adding some things and omitting others. Before we condemn Eve, you need to remember the context. You see, where was the command given? The command was given in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And when was Eve created? Eve wasn't created until Genesis 2.22. Eve wasn't even there when the command was given. So whose fault is it that Eve doesn't know the command? That Eve doesn't know the word of God? It's Adam's. 
Adam failed to fulfill his priestly duty to teach Eve the Word of God. And Eve's mishandling of the command leads Satan to deny the Word of God outright. And this is in verse 4, denying the Word. Satan subtly starts in verse 1 by, uh, you know, by twisting the Word. But when he, sees, when he sees Eve mishandle the Word, he pounces. He moves from subtlety to a full frontal attack, from twisting the word to outright denying the word. Look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You will not surely die. And I want you to notice here that Satan quotes the word more accurately than Eve, right? Eve left out the surely. You shall not eat from it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She leaves out the surely. But what does Satan say? You will not what? You will not surely die. Satan quotes the command correctly, but then he negates it. And this is the first doctrine in the history of the world that is negated, right? That, that's, that's contradicted. And it's the doctrine of judgment. You will not surely die. Satan sees Eve's ignorance of the word, and he takes her from confusion to rejection. And that leads us to the second part of the pattern of sin, which is grasping for God's place in verses 5 and 6. You see, once Satan denies God's word, then he replaces it with an attractive promise. Look at verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil." Satan provides a substitute narrative. He's giving Eve something else to believe. And there's a connection between the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the command in 2.17 and the, the temptation here in verse 5, be like God knowing good and evil. And knowing good and evil doesn't mean that they'll eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and now they'll have a moral sense, right? They already have a moral sense. They're created in the image of God. They're already able to distinguish right from wrong. But you see, knowing here, knowing good and evil, has the sense of determining or choosing what is good and what is evil? In other words, when you take God's place, when you become like God, you get to determine what is good and what is evil for you. You become like God in that you are a law unto yourself. You make your own decisions about what is good and what is evil. You're not subject to anyone else's law. You become your own God. You become your own sovereign. You become your own king. Satan is saying that if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will take God's place. You will become your own king. One commentator says, the climax is a lie big enough to reinterpret life and dynamic enough to redirect the flow of affection and ambition. To be as God and to achieve it by outwitting him is an intoxicating program. God will henceforth be regarded, consciously or not, as rival and enemy. 
So the tempter pits his bare assertion against the word and works of God, presenting divine love as envy, service as servility, and a suicidal plunge as a leap to life. All these things I give to thee, Satan says. The pattern repeats itself in Christ's temptation and in ours. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was also the tree was to be desired to make one wise she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who is with her and he ate Y'all here is the fall she took and she ate And you might be thinking well I had fruit for breakfast, right? What, what, what's, the, what's the big deal here? But she took must be seen in light of verse 5. Because when she reached out to take the fruit, which remember, she was the first one to identify the word fruit. When she reached out to take the fruit, she was grasping for the place of God. She was grasping for the place of God. And this is the essence of sin. It's wanting to be God. It's grasping for God's place. Right? Why should you be a creature? Why should you be dependent? If we really understand Genesis 3, verse 5 and 6, it means that you won't have this God to rule over you. And notice Eve's logic here. When she saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that, it was, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, then she took of its fruit and ate. Now those things may be true or may not be true, but they're irrelevant, right? Eve is focused on the sparkly exterior. Is it practical? Will it make me successful? How does it make me feel? And she's not focused on the substance of obedience. And temptation often does this. It causes distraction with irrelevant things. The Apostle John talks about the pattern of temptation. Can I get that next slide, Andre? In 1 John 2.16, he says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And in rebellion, Eve reaches out and takes the fruit, grasping for the very place of God, and eats. Thanks, Sandra. Which leads us to our reflection quote in your bulletin this morning. Derek Kidner says, the pattern of sin runs right through the act. For Eve listened to a creature instead of the Creator, followed her impressions against her instructions, and made self-fulfillment her goal. This prospect of material, aesthetic, and mental enrichment seemed to add up to life itself, and the world still offers it. But man's lifeline is spiritual, namely God's Word and the response of faith. To break it is death. She took and ate. So simple the act, so hard its undoing. 
God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. So the origin of sin is also the essence of sin. It's grasping for the place of God. And this is the arrogance of man. You see, every sin begins with grasping for the place of God. Every sin begins with saying, I'm my own sovereign. I'm not subject to God's law. Every sin begins with, I won't have anyone else rule over me. I'll be my own king. This is the essence of sin. It's grasping for the place of God. It's the arrogance of man. You see, the assembly line of sin is still rolling along. It's in our world, and it's in our own hearts. Sociologists say that the, we are the first generation in the history of the world where the majority of people don't believe in God. And you can hear the refrain, I'll be my own king. In the great dechurching, Jim Davis notes that 40 million people have left the church in the last 25 years, and you can hear the refrain, I'll be my own king. Alan Noble's book, You Are Not Your Own, is a robust analysis of American culture. He says that life is better today than it was 80 years ago. We have more wealth and more comfort, better travel, technology, more ease and food, but it's worse because we've reached unprecedented levels of depression and anxiety and loneliness and burnout. And how did we get there? Through individualism and consumerism that are telling us we are our own. We belong to ourselves. iPhone, Google, Facebook, Amazon, we live in this world that's all centered on us. We are our own king. We're rejecting God's rule, and we're isolated and exhausted and empty and alienated. And you can hear the refrain, I'll be my own king. You see, the assembly line of sin is still rolling along. It's in our world. It's in our own hearts. We're still grasping for the place of God. And you can hear the refrain, I'll be my own king. Now, this whole time, we've been listening to a conversation between Eve and the serpent because they're the only two people who are speaking. But did you catch that there was a third person here? Look at the end of verse 6. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. You see, Adam ate too. He was there the whole time. He just never spoke up. He never intervened. He was complicit by his silence. One commentator says, to those who want to blame Eve, we say at least Eve presented an argument. Adam just caved in without comment. And here's the thing. Back in Genesis 2.15, Adam was charged with his priestly duty to guard the Garden of Eden by keeping the command and upholding the covenant and thereby protecting the place of God's presence. Adam was supposed to guard and protect the sacred sanctuary. Adam was supposed to guard and protect the holy temple. And this was before Eve was created. 
And now, in Genesis chapter 3, there's a clear and present danger. There's an imminent threat. The evil one comes in to challenge the command. He's twisting and he's deceiving. And this was the moment, this was the climax of the story when Adam's supposed to stand up and protect and guard the holy temple. And Adam doesn't say a word. He acquiesces and follows his wife's lead. He takes and he eats. Did you know that fairy tales are obsessed with knights who slay dragons? Fairy tales are obsessed with knights who slay dragons. Because in our stories, we're trying still to reverse the silence of Adam. We're trying to undo the failure of the first man. We're looking for the true knight, the true priest, who will defend the temple and will slay the dragon. And that leads us then to our third point, the pattern of redemption. You see, the pattern of redemption follows the same path the same storyline, the same pattern, the same paradigm as the pattern of sin. Because there is a second Adam who faces the same tempter, who faces the same temptation, but gets very different results. In Matthew 4 and Luke 4, the Gospels record the temptation of Jesus. Matthew 4, 1 says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And three times the devil tempts, inviting Jesus each time to grasp for the place of God. And three times Jesus responds, it is written, it is written, it is written. Where Adam was silent and Eve was confused, Jesus rightly applies the word of truth. He confounds the evil one. He is the true priest, the true knight who defends the sanctuary, who upholds the covenant by keeping the commandment. You see, the pattern of redemption is really a tale of two temptations because Genesis 3 is met by Matthew 4. Instead of the fall of man, we have the standing of man. It's the tale of two temptations. But the pattern of redemption is also the tale of two gardens. In the Garden of Eden, the first Adam grasps for the place of God. He declares that he won't have God to rule over him. But there's another garden. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, the second Adam seeing the full weight of the cup of wrath that will be poured out on the cross. Three times he submits to the Father's will. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. You see, the Garden of Eden was a garden of rebellion, but the Garden of Gethsemane was a garden of submission. And the pattern of redemption is also a tale of two postures. You see, the arrogance of man is met by the humility of God. 
The first Adam grasping for the place of God is met by the second Adam, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the pattern of redemption is also a tale of two phrases. You see, the take-eat of Genesis 3-6 is met with the take-eat of Matthew 26-26. Both Adam and Eve took and ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And with these little words, just these two words, take, eat, sin entered the world. Take, eat is the fall. But did you know that take, eat is also redemption? Matthew 26, 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. You see, as we come to the Lord's table today, we are reminded that Jesus has answered the pattern of sin in every way to secure for us the pattern of redemption. You see, every time we mishandle God's word, whether in legalism or licentiousness, Jesus has already answered because he is the word. Every time we, re- we fail to repel the temptations of the evil one, Jesus has already answered by saying three times, it is written. Every time we find ourselves grasping for God's place, Jesus has already answered by not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped. And every time we exalt ourselves over God in arrogance, Jesus has already answered by humbling himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, on the cross, Jesus answers the assembly line of sin. He has paid the penalty. He has conquered sin and death. And through his perfect life and atoning death, he can invite us to another assembly line. He can invite us to the assembly line of faith and repentance. And through new birth, he gives us a new heart and a new life with the fruit of the Spirit. And we can be conformed more and more to the image of God day by day. We can become more like him. And so these two assembly lines, these two patterns, one of sin and one of redemption, will run side by side until Jesus comes again. And when that day breaks and those shadows flee, the very last sin will have rolled off of the assembly line and sin will no longer be in our world. It will no longer be in our hearts. And we will no longer be grasping for the place of God because we will behold God face to face and sin will be no more. You see, this is the pattern of sin and redemption. The arrogance of man is met by the humility of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we think about the weight of sin, 
and see us so often grasping for your place in our own lives and in our own hearts. We rejoice that Jesus has come and has given us the answer that he is the true and better priest who has defended the sanctuary and has slayed the dragon. Father, would you prepare our hearts now to come to your table that we might take and eat. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.